The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. A blow to America's AAA status as debt ceiling talks drag on. Fitch placing us on uh, rating watch negative. And while stocks aren't moving much on the news, treasuries are, and the timing of it could be problematic. We'll look at why, how it factors into the next Fed decision, and where to ride out the risks in the market right now. Meanwhile, NVIDIA powering the NASDAQ higher today. Shares soaring on blockbuster earnings and guidance. Its market cap now nearing a trillion. But are the charts flashing a sell signal? Katie Stockton is here with what she's seeing. And just a few days ago, people were calling Musk the next Rupert Murdoch. Today, they're calling Twitter not quite ready for prime time. We'll look at any potential fallout from last night's DeSantis Twitter debacle. But first, let's get to today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. It's red and green, and it's because of NVIDIA. So you got two different markets out there. It's basically tech, chips, communication services, telecom, that sort of thing, and then everything else out there. And for that reason, you're seeing some of the more kind of value-oriented stocks and sectors, as indicated by the Dow Industrials, down one half of 1% or 165 points, 33,633. The S&P 500 uh, solidly above 4,100 now, 4,142 the last trade. They're up 26 points, two-thirds of 1%. Uh, and again, at the high, it's been an up day for the S&P. At the highs, we were up about 40 points. And at the lows of the session, still up about 14. And NVIDIA has been a big reason behind that. NASDAQ Composite, you can see, up over 1.5%. And NVIDIA and the tech trade has been a huge, powerful engine for that move. We'll see if that sticks around. One other place we're keeping a close eye on is what's happening with the energy market, specifically with U.S. benchmark crude prices. They are falling by about 3.5%, and that's off the worst levels of the session so far, partly because of at least a demand issue. Maybe there's an economic problem ahead. Maybe the debt ceiling showdown causes some worries. Also partly because Russian officials have now tossed some cold water on the idea that OPEC and its partner countries might actually engage in more production cuts at its upcoming meeting on June 4th. That's putting some pressure on oil prices. So watch that down three and a half percent, $71.69. And then the retail trade, very much a mixed picture, especially for a headliner like Best Buy. Earnings better than expected. Sales maybe a slight miss. It reaffirmed its full year forecast, which indicates some declining sales of some of those consumer electronics products that people bought a lot of during the COVID pandemic. The draw forward's an issue there, up 1%. Ralph Lauren, better than expected results, driven by the reopening of China, up 4.5%. And then Dollar Tree, one of the worst performers in the S&P, Kelly, down about 11% right now. Uh, Earnings didn't come to expectations. It also cut its full year profit forecast. Margins are getting squeezed. They were talking about shrinkage like many other retailers are, theft and that sort of thing. Watch Dollar Tree, Ralph Lauren, Best Buy. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate it. And we begin with the debt ceiling showdown today. We've got team coverage on every angle of the developing story. Kayla Tausche is in Washington with the rift between both sides that persists. Leslie Picker is covering the potential credit rating downgrade, maybe from two firms uh, today as well. And Steve Leisman is here on set with me. He's tracking the fallout on both banks and government bonds and maybe Fed futures. But that's another story. Kayla, let's start with you. 
Kelly, negotiators were working late into the evening and have been moving closer to a compromise position just as that June 1st deadline nears. According to Reuters, there's now just a $70 billion gap between their two positions, with the two sides expected to agree to a top-line spending number first and then let lawmakers hammer out the program details through the traditional budget process. The White House, the Treasury Department, and the U.S. Office of Management and Budget all radio silent on the talks, which as of yesterday would have required the administration to offer more savings to win over Republicans. And Democrats, well, they're not happy. Republicans are driving us down a dangerous road of default or have presented the American people with another unacceptable choice, which is devastating cuts to children, devastating cuts to Medicaid, devastating cuts to nutrition, devastating cuts to education. But they're now racing against the clock. In order to pass any agreement by June 1st, a deal would need to be reached by tomorrow at latest. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy still promising members three whole days to read the deal before voting. The House could then vote on Tuesday, the Senate on Wednesday, May 31st. And then it would be up to Congress after that to figure out where specific cuts would come from before another deadline, this one on October 1st, to fund the government. Kelly. Wow. So in some ways, the deadline is tomorrow. We don't feel that close. Uh, Kayla, thank you. Meantime, the debt ceiling fight is leading one of the big three credit rating agencies to put the country's AAA rating on negative watch. Leslie Picker with the details. Uh, everyone, I mean, last night, Leslie, busy news night, but this was one, uh, one we couldn't miss. Yeah, we've been kind of waiting to see what those big three would do, but it's Fitch with a shot across the bow to Congress. Uh, the ratings agency putting the U.S. on what's known as rating watch negative, telling lawmakers to raise the debt limit by the deadline, ensure debt securities are paid on time and in full, and keep levels of debt to GDP in check or else risk a ratings downgrade from AAA. Fitch says it still believes there will be a resolution before the deadline, but says, quote, risks have risen that the debt limit will not be raised or suspended before the X date, and consequently the government could begin to miss payments on some of its obligations. But some believe the ratings agencies should be doing more in the meantime. We spoke a short while ago with Moritz Kramer, who was part of that group that made the decision to downgrade the U.S. rating while at S&P in 2011. He told us that the ratings agencies this time around are acting, quote, quite late and quite timidly. If you have a political system that gambles this way with the creditworthiness of the nation and the full faith and credit of the country, um, it has no business in AAA land. Because uh, what, what we're seeing now evolving, I think, is at least as severe as it was in 2011 in terms of um, the difficulty of finding a way out. And this is just not what you would expect, such a dysfunctional system um, uh, of a country with the highest level of creditworthiness. While the Fitch news seems to have a muted impact on the stock market today, volatility in prior episodes actually crept up closer to the deadline and actually beyond that deadline date. However, Treasury markets responded much earlier to the debt ceiling risks this time around than they have in prior debt ceiling episodes, Kelly. That's surprising, actually. I, that, and you're right, they, they have because we could potentially be a little ways off still. Leslie, thank you. Let's talk about the impact on government bonds and the banks. Steve Leisman is here to explain. You think this is kind of all coming together at the worst possible time, Steve? Exactly. While it's not entirely clear, Kelly, what's causing bond yields to rise, it's a good bet 
at least part of what's been happening is concern about a possible U.S. default yields on one month, three month and six month bills. They've surged since early May. Some of it could go along with or hawkish Fed talk. We've had leading markets to maybe think the Fed's not quite done yet, but I think more of it coincides with brinksmanship on the debt ceiling. Investors have been fleeing bonds that would be the first to mature if there were indeed a default. Yields have also risen for two and 10-year bonds. I mean, concerns, among other things, the U.S. could experience another downgrade. All of this comes, of course, right after regional banks have been through a tough time because, yep, the price of bonds on their books, these very same treasury bonds, have fallen, creating liquidity concerns. So the debt ceiling hijinks not help the banking problem may be making it worse. The result, since Tuesday, S&P's off 1.1%. Regional bank stocks, however, are down 2.4% amid this renewed pessimism about the sector. Now, the Fed, it could declare, as it did in 2011, in the wake of the S&P downgrade, that there will be no change in the treatment of government-issued debt for risk rates or other purposes at the Fed. That could help, but higher yields could continue to pressure banks if it's actually, Kelly, a loss of faith in the creditworthiness of the United States. How many Black check marks do you get? Right. And you can keep going and add the full faith and credit. No, and Steve, your benchmark. rates point, especially, stay with us. Let's dive a little bit more into kind of, we'll just call it everything that's been going on and the next steps for the market. Joining me now, David Zervos is chief market strategist at Jefferies. Peter Bookvar is chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. And here in studio with Steve and I is Dan Greenhouse, managing director at Solus Alternative, at, or, or is it with Steve and me? I can, is it with Steve and with I? With me. Steve and I. With, with Steve no, and me. not with I. Wouldn't it be with me? <laughs> See, now, us. now, with us. now that I have to teach my kids, I realize I have no idea. Um, and the heavy hitters we have assembled here show the degree of seriousness with which we're now trying to treat all of this. So, uh, Dan Greenhouse, let me just turn to you first. It's not that the AAA loss is that relevant per se, but we seem to be heading in without a plan into, a, into the deadline here. Yeah, I mean, I actually disagree somewhat with, with the position of Fitch, uh, as I did with S&P at the time. I think what you're seeing, not what I think, what you are seeing is the political sausage being made, the proverbial sausage being made. And I don't know why a rating agency would be surprised that the debt ceiling would engender debate among political parties up on up on the Hill. But and then should, conversely, why you would downgrade the U.S. as a result of that. But should they downgrade our treasuries because we are now have a, a 7 percent one one week bill implying a higher risk of default? I mean, it, it kind of that from that point of view, it makes sense. They're just responding to the market. Sure. Except, I mean, except, listen, the, the rates that at, you know, forget the one month, three month and six month bills that Steve brought up in the next one, two and three weeks, let's say. Uh, a lot of that is a function of people positioning themselves to just not simply be in the bill right. that might have a delayed payment. You're a, a banker, Dan, and 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 the the husband and wife come in and they disagree about whether they ought to take the loan, whether they ought to pay back the loan. I don't know. I might charge you a higher rate because exactly. of that, or I might not give you the loan. And there's certainly a higher rate being charged in the short That's term. That's the point. Not the, just short term, maybe. That's my no, concern. What I'm saying is that 7% yield you're seeing in two- and three-week bills will go right back to where they should be, quote-unquote, when this gets solved. My, my point earlier about the rating agencies, and just to tie this up, is we have no idea how this is going to resolve itself. Everyone assumes, based on nothing, that they will reach an agreement in the next couple of days, a bill will go through the procedures and will eventually be passed into law. When that happens, we will quickly forget, forget about the political debate that, was, that, that, so, that occurred in front of that. The end result is exactly what the political process should result in, which is a budget. Let me turn to Dave Zervos on this. And Dave, there's, there's kind of two springboard reactions that you hear. The one is, oh, stocks are going to rally once we reach a deal because now we can put this all behind us. But the other one, which I think is pretty provocative and interesting, is, 
you know, stocks might sell off in the way that if, if we had to do austerity in 2011 to reach a deal that was serious austerity, or now if there's more austerity to come in the government budget negotiation or whatever down the road, if it's setting us up for, you know, a GDP headwind that is going to be pretty significant, and this is just the beginning of pricing that in. So I know you're going to tell us everything's fine, Dave, but I just want to throw that out there. Well, Kelly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make sure you guys put, you know, one other market lens on this, which is that the dollar index today is up almost half a percent. True. So the dollar is strengthening quite a lot. The euro is almost trading on a 106 handle. Uh, and everybody I've talked to this year is pretty dollar negative. So this is hurting people. We were, you know, we were four figures higher in euro dollar and we're pushing uh, big numbers in dollar yen as well. So I, I kind of differ a lot with what everybody's saying here. I think the stock market's kind of giving you a good read. The currency market's telling you the dollar is more than fine. And the bond market's kind of telling you maybe the economy, the April data has been a little bit better. And, you know, the, the storyline of, uh, of Fed cuts being imminent or recession being right around the corner is maybe not as clear as everybody thought. I mean, the whole the whole sell side complex seems to have a recession forecasting to start in the next two weeks or three weeks, uh, something like that, uh, certainly the second half of the year. So I, I think this debt ceiling thing is actually, I haven't written about it once at Jeffries, and I don't plan to write about it unless something really significant happens, but I really think it's being overplayed in a pretty low vol environment overall. Uh, in the last month or two. And you're allowed to take a victory lap on that because you were one of the few people post-SVB who said it's not going to be that bad, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But there were a few people shaking their heads while you were talking, Dave. So let me, let me turn to Peter Bookvar and bring you in, Peter. And um, just tell us kind of how you're analyzing this. Well, firstly, when a, a rating on a country that has their own printing press is really just something symbolic. It's not reflecting the U.S.'s ability to pay back their bondholders. Uh, so I, I, I Maybe just kind of roll my eyes when a rating agency is, yeah, well, I, I think to, to what Dan said earlier, you know, this will get done and we'll forget about the, the political process going into it. But it is symbolic in the sense that there is an institution out there that is raising and questioning this, the rising debts and deficits that we're now experiencing. And for 30 years, debts and deficits, I guess, didn't matter. But I think that they maybe now matter and that the rise in interest rates is not necessarily happening for good reason, because it's also happening when we're sort of reaching this mismatch between all the supply that's about to flood us over the next couple of months when the debt ceiling does get raised and who's going to buy it all. Now, I know that's, that's always a question who's going to buy it all, but you have some big buyers that are just not in the game anymore, like the Fed, like foreign central banks, like, like the banks themselves. And there's a lot of paper to absorb. So you can get this lift up in, uh, in interest rates just for that one reason until we find certain, a sure. clearing price. Now, to David's comment about the stock market, well, if you look at NVIDIA and AI stocks, you can say, wow, the economy is booming. But if you look at every, everything else, you can say we're in a recession. And with respect to the dollar, the dollar really has just been following interest rates. And in the U.S. And it's been happening since June 2021 when Powell said we're now thinking about tapering QE. So I don't look at the dollar rally as an expression of the world's confidence in the U.S. Yeah. It's just mimicking the two-year yield. Let me just throw out a stat I to back him up. The fewest stocks beating the S&P 500 since March of 2000. That's from uh, Michael Kantrowitz at, at Piper Sandler today. I can't tell if these two guys are on the screen right now. 
are Robert Duval on the beach in Vietnam when the bombs around him. He's just walking and things are blowing up around him. And he's saying he loves the smell of napalm in the afternoon. I'm not sure he actually said that. But, you know, or or they're Kevin Bacon in Animal House with people riding around saying everything is fine. Everything is fine. I guess I'm a, I, I was I was with you guys before. Now I, I just don't know that they get the deal done. I think it looks like it's going to be a little bit more. I don't know what you want to say. Uh, uh, rough on the uh, away go. And, and I think that you have to start to think about the idea. They do not get a deal done. And we start to go through all the gyrations that would be necessary. Well, let me Am ju- I wrong about that, Dan? No, no. Are you Robert Duval or are you Kevin Bacon? No, I, if anything, I'm, I'm Ben Affleck. But uh, <laughs> w- what I would say is I think when you look back at 2011, which is really the re- only representative example that we have to look at, and all five of us were active market participants at the time, so we remember it, you really didn't see market dislocations in either the equity or the credit markets until about a week before what was then the X date, which in was August. which was the very beginning of August. That's correct. The market didn't really sell off, so to speak, until towards the end. And I don't know that. Does the, that tell us we're not to, towards the end? That they think well, we're going to go past June one, potentially to June fifteen, potentially to you know, is it is that why? Uh, I mean, listen, one one data point is not a data set, but. I think um, since it is the only thing that we have to go by, and I do think that the debate today has many echoes then where everyone was saying a deal would get done, and a deal did get done, uh, and a rating agency did eventually downgrade us, which all, and everyone forgets the, the big sell-off in the market was the Monday after the downgrade. It wasn't, it wasn't the debt ceiling itself. I think we just have to take a step back here and say, okay, the X date is probably, uh, call it June 7th or so, maybe June 8th, and God willing, maybe we can get to the 15th, in which case we can get to August. I mean, there's right. a lot of uncertainty around this debate, and I think from a, it's very difficult to look at markets and say markets aren't yet pressuring people when we're still two weeks out from the X date that no one believes right. is the actual X date. So, Dave Zervos, let me ask you, I haven't heard, you know, sort of, I know when you turn more bearish or more cautious, everyone call it on, on stocks a little while ago, but, you know, you've been pretty constructive lately. What is the trade for people from here on out? Because I know you're not, but I'm still concerned about the macro. Well, look, we, we're, not, we, we're not jumping up and down about stocks this year, and we certainly weren't last year. We've been focusing in on credit. We think senior secured credit is a much uh, safer place to take a little bit more risk. Uh, this year than last year. And uh, you've got, you know, single B, double B bonds and loans and structured credit in the 8 to 12% region, which is a lot of protection. And you've got all the equity guys that get to take the bullets in front of you if something goes wrong because they're junior in the capital structure. So that's our story. I'm sticking to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hear everybody's saying that the deal gets done, it all gets done, it's all okay. But then everybody's also like, there's some sort of weird, I don't know, mini short-term Armageddon that comes from it. And markets are very forward-looking. We've had 100 of these debt ceiling rises. They all get done. It's all political posturing. Yes, we may go through a little bit more of a nasty one like we did in 11, but I, I just don't think the market is is going to train itself, Steve in particular, you know, on, on some sort of major structural event here or major permanent event here. And, and Stephen, the first train is an important story. It's not just following interest rates. If the market was losing confidence in the United States, they would not be strengthening the dollar. So that's just a fact. It's the most liquid market and macro that there is. So you can't just turn around, Peter, and talk about rates being the driver. If we really had a problem and people didn't believe in the uh, value of the U.S. dollar and the commitment of the U.S. government to pay back its debts, we would have a much bigger problem with the dollar. And the dollar just rallied half a percent. 
And it's actually taking everybody out that's long because it's the most popular macro position out there. I won't say it, but it's not great for the S&P 500. But I, I didn't say. No, but, it Steve, but Steve, let me just give you a quick last word. We're out yeah. of time, but you have to make a very, very important point about Fed funds futures. You know, as we're trying to assess the odds yeah. of June, for instance, um, just talk to me Look, mechanically. It's, 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 always, it's always the case that what's happening in the bond market is affecting the, the Fed funds futures. Uh, right now, I don't believe we can use them to tell where the market stands because we have this huge rise. If you guys want to put up that board of the one, three, and six-month bills that are out there right now, they're up five, three, five, four, five, six, whatever wherever the heck they are. Just to translate for a second, normally right now, if they're up, it's because people think more rate hikes more are coming. More rate hikes but are coming. But if they're up because of debt I limit. I think they're up because of debt limit, yeah. and that's bleeding over into the outlook for the Fed funds, which is now showing uh, almost certainty about a rate hike by July. I'm not sure that actually reflects the market sentiment. Dan, you... Quick last word. No, I, I think that's exactly right. right. You yeah. can't take any information from the short-term bill market right now. Right. Oh, goody. Well, and we'll maybe they're in the blind. dollar, David. I think they may be in the dollar now because if it's a flight to safety. That's yeah. why. Safety from the U.S. that's losing its That's what happens. Exactly, exactly what happens every time. And yet in long-term yields fall. I agree because the market knows it gets done. Exactly. It's bizarre right. We'll leave it there. Thank you all so much today. We appreciate it. Dave Zervos, Peter Bookvar, Dan Greenhouse, and Steve, Ben Affleck, I'm sorry, and uh, Steve. <laughs> Coming up, those debt ceiling worries are not standing in the way of NVIDIA today. None of the street's forecasts even came close to predicting this blowout quarter. We'll put it all in perspective after the break and check charts with Katie Stockton. Plus, Marvell, Costco, and Ulta out with earnings after the bell. We've got the numbers and narratives to know ahead of those reports and earnings exchange. And as we head to break, let's get a quick look at the markets where the Dow remains down 105 points, even with the S&P up 30 today or nearly 1%, and the Nasdaq up nearly 2% on NVIDIA's strength. The 10-year yield, by the way, is almost 380 today, and the Russells are under pressure again on some regional bank weakness. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a... Like a good neighbor? Guys... I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. NVIDIA should change its name to NVID AI, or maybe it doesn't need to, as it's now become synonymous with the booming technology. Shares rocketing 27% on a blowout quarter. Earnings, 19% above estimates. Its biggest bottom line beat in five years. Revenues, 10% above expectations. The biggest top line beat in five and a half years. And as for guidance, NVIDIA sees second quarter revenues of $11 billion 
the estimate was just a little over seven. That's more than 50% above estimates. And to put that in perspective, NVIDIA's best revenue quarter ever prior to apparently what's coming was $8.3 billion. It's now closing in on a trillion dollars in market cap. As you can see there, 958 as it sits at 387. So is all the opportunity finally priced in now, or is this just the beginning of a wave of AI-related tech outperformance? That's the subject of today's Tech Check. Let's ask Deirdre Bosa. Hi, Deirdre. <laughs> Kelly, hear me out. I'm going to tell you why some are saying NVIDIA is not overvalued. Yes, it is nearing that trillion-dollar club, as you just said. It is expensive, more expensive on a price-to-earnings multiple than any other chipmaker or mega cap. But given that blowout guidance, it is actually cheaper than it was yesterday. Now, the expected earnings part of the equation went way up last night, beyond anyone's expectations. Even with today's surge in share price, that does not account for the explosive demand in AI that NVIDIA is expecting in the enterprise and the consumer landscape. So one could actually look at the current action as a valuation dip. Last night, NVIDIA's calendar year 24 price-to-earnings ratio was about 50 times. Today, it's at about 40 times. 2025 PE was about 41 times going into the results yesterday. Today, it's at a more reasonable 33 times. Now, this stock chart says it all. The stock price is rising, but the price-to-earnings ratio plunged thanks to what one analyst called a guidance for the ages. And that is really the metric that many analysts typically look at to judge whether stock is expensive or not. Relative to other stocks, it's expensive. Relative to its earnings ratio last night, it is not. Now, as for lateral AI and NVIDIA plays, this was an idea from Bank of America this morning. Kelly, it might have been tongue-in-cheek, but it also makes a lot of sense. Real estate and car dealers in Santa Clara, that is where the headquarters of NVIDIA is. And if this generative AI boom is bigger than the internet, many, many millionaires and billionaires, they are going to be minted we saw what has happened here in the Bay Area, Santa, Ro Santa Clara, excuse me, is still in that Silicon Valley area, South Bay. You could see an explosion in property value and purchases there from all of the beneficiaries of NVIDIA. That is a really interesting point. Deirdre, watching every angle of it. Thank you, our Deirdre Bosa. So does NVIDIA have more room to run or is it time to trim? Should I even utter those words? Let's look at what the charts are telling us and we'll bring in Katie Stockton. She is founder and managing partner at Fairlead Strategies. Great to have you here, Katie. I am Thanks, loving to know. What, what, when you look at this chart, what do you see? Well, it, it is a breakout to new all-time highs, and that typically is a good long-term development. So I wouldn't want to minimize the bullishness of what's happened with NVIDIA. And for those who are lucky enough to own it, I think they're quite happy. It probably doesn't feel uh, cheaper today than yesterday to them. But, um, you know, the, the targeted objective that we can arrive at from this kind of breakout, we use something called a measured move projection. It essentially assumes that the trajectory of the existing long-term uptrend will maintain itself. And that arrives at an objective of about 409 for NVIDIA, which is, of course, above current levels. So I think that that's all we have, really, to gauge as potential upside from a technical perspective, given there's no additional resistance on the chart. And yet, as we saw this gap up this morning, we did see the DeMarc indicators, which are counter-trend indicators, flash sell signals on both the weekly bar chart and also the daily bar chart. So that hints at the fact that NVIDIA might be overdone, at least in the short term.
Ooh, overdone at least in the short term. And so let me make sure I'm understanding you you're right, Katie. So when you break out to new highs, the kind of a generally bullish thing, you know, maybe there's some upside, like you said, in that kind of 409 area, but that on a momentum basis, and this also makes sense in the very near term, maybe it has to consolidate a little bit. That's right. What we don't want to see, and this is typical of anything that gaps up after a very strong up move, we don't want to see NVIDIA come back into that gap quickly. So today's low, which right is right around 366 as it stands, today's low will define the upper boundary of the gap left on the daily chart of NVIDIA. We want to see NVIDIA hold up for several days above that upper boundary of the gap in order to essentially preserve the breakout and make it clear that the gap is not indeed exhaustive, which sometimes they are after big up moves. That is so helpful uh, and, and kind of explains the importance of watching the price action for the next couple of sessions. Does it have any bearing on the market overall? You know, the S&P 500, for instance, does this change the charts in any dramatic sense? Or I'm just curious if you had, had you know, kind of what your latest thinking was on how that one's shaping up. Well, it hasn't helped the S&P 500 much, especially given the two-day pullback that preceded this up move today. The S&P is testing resistance around 4155, which is a key level in our work. And we want to see a close above that level tomorrow to confirm a breakout. Certainly has the potential to do that. But the Nasdaq 100 is certainly benefiting big time from NVIDIA's rally and also has the potential to confirm a breakout. It does look more likely with this move. And that would require a close above around 13,600 tomorrow. So that's looking increasingly likely. And what it could mean is that the mega caps are going to continue to kind of uh, lead higher or exhibit upside leadership in relative strength terms at least. Just incredible with everything else going on. Katie, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Katie Stockton from Fairlead. Still ahead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announcing his presidential campaign during a conversation with Elon Musk on Twitter spaces. But as you know, not everything went as planned. We'll look at the launch strategy and what it means for Twitter's media hopes. Dow's down 62. Now the exchange is back after this. Selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update at this hour. The founder of the Oath Keepers extremist group was sentenced to 18 years in prison for orchestrating a weeks-long plot that culminated in his followers attacking the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Stuart Rhodes is the first person charged in the January 6 attack to be sentenced for seditious conspiracy, and his sentence is the longest in the hundreds of Capitol riot cases so far. A car collided with the gates of Downing Street in central London, where British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's home and offices are located. That set off a rapid security response that resulted in the arrest of a man on suspicion of criminal damage and dangerous driving. There were no reports, happily, of any injuries. And the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, made a surprise appearance at the Johns Hopkins University commencement. He appeared via virtual live stream to speak to the graduating class. And he told the graduates that time is the most valuable resource, not oil, uranium, lithium, 
or any of that. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thanks. See you soon. Coming up, three key names in earnings exchange. Did NVIDIA set the bar too high for Marvell? Can Costco deliver a big box beat? And we saw Elf Beauty post an 80% jump in sales. Can Ulta post a glowing quarter too? We'll answer that after this. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, everyone. It's time for Earnings Exchange. And today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on Marvell, Costco, and Ulta. In the wake of NVIDIA, let's start with Marvell, whose shares are higher in sympathy today. The street will be watching for any similar indications about AI. Tailwinds, inventory normalizations, the shares are up 5% right now. Morgan Stanley also watching its data center business, saying those prospects are compelling from here. While Wells Fargo notes that while Marvell thinks its China business will rebound, there's very little visibility into the timing of that recovery. So given those cross currents, we turn to Ari Wald for our trades today. He's managing director at Oppenheimer. Ari, we don't talk a lot about Marvell, but everyone wants the next NVIDIA now, are they? Sure. No cross currents here, Kelly. These are all tailwinds, how we <laughs> see it. Uh, we've been on the show since January uh, discussing the semiconductor industry as a top idea and why we think that the bear cycle uh, ended last year. Uh, we maintain that view. I think the relative strength of the industry, the broadness of it, and it provides exposure to what we expect to be a rising market tape. Uh, so in terms of the broadness, Marvell's really just been the latest to break above its 200-day average, multiple closes above that, uh, that, that price level for the first time in over a year. I think that indicates that the stock's prior downtrend has reversed. Uh, it still can be considered in its base at $49. That would be the breakout level. Uh, but by pullbacks, uh, today's gap is now supported around $46. All right, forward PE 33. So uh, it's not exactly you know, expensive either. Let's move along to Costco now. It's one of the best performing staples up about 11% this year. It was a winner in the face of rising inflation and Steeple says it could also benefit as inflation cools by pushing price cuts that could increase brand loyalty. Stiefel, like many, also says Costco is overdue for a membership price hike. The last one was back in 2017. They're typically every five years. That said, the recent drop in oil prices could take out a chunk of its sales and there's the overall spending slowdown to consider. Ari, what do you do with Costco? Yeah, this is one where we see more mixed evidence. Uh, the stock has been in a narrowing range. It's been making both higher lows and lower highs for the better part of the last year. That's fine when the market's in a bear market uh, and it's trading poorly as it was last year. But you really saw this stock's relative strength break in December while the rest of the market was beginning to strengthen. So as it stands right here, right now, we just simply see more attractive opportunities elsewhere while Costco is below resistance at $510. Better opportunity elsewhere. Okay, let's turn then and see if Ulta is one of those places. Its shares are down about 7% since its last report in March. It blew earnings and comps out of the water in Q4 and issued stronger than expected full guidance, uh, but also, also said it expects the beauty category to remain healthy, but, you know, to a moderate uh, to a more moderate typical annual growth rate. Baird, by the way, echoing this in their preview note, they expect a beat given signs of demand resilience, but spending softening, they're watching increasing competition, as well as Ulta's expansion plans of 25 to 30 new stores this year. Is this a buy for you? This is a buy. This is where we see opportunity and also rated outperformed by Oppenheimer's own Rupesh Parikh, one of the best retail analysts on the street. Yeah. Uh, the stock's down about 13% uh, from its high, and there's you know, two reasons based on our work, while we think this uh, weakness is, is, is viable. First off, stocks coming off a new cycle high 
in what's been a generally a difficult mixed market tape, let's put it that way. So we see that as an indication of relative strength. And this pullback has brought the stock into the bullish slope of its 200-day average, which we define as a near-term opportunity to buy long-term strength, a pullback and an uptrend, if you will. Uh, so uh, th that support level, that 200-day, is at $470. Below there we would make us question our view, but uh, with a stop at 470, we see a pullback to be bought in Ulta. Okay. Final question. I'm just going to sneak this in, but it's just about the broader market. You know, we're, we just talk, spoke with Katie Stockton. We're asking everybody about this, the rally that continues in the face of, you know, everything. Um, well, how do you feel, for instance, about the S&P 500? You know, it's stuck between a bull and a bear. It's still range bound. I would say more likely to break higher. I see a market from a period of broad-based selling last year, selling has gotten more concentrated. We're seeing pockets of the market that have started to work. Uh, and even thinking about some of these large-cap growth stocks that have become near-term overbought, uh, that's not where the issue is. Uh, the issue is elsewhere, what's holding it back. You know, on a market pullback, it's the areas of relative weakness, which are the losses that not, aren't necessarily recouped that you can buy relative strength on pullback. You buy NVIDIA and semiconductors on pullbacks. Uh, so if you're worried about market breadth, uh, I'd be looking at value areas and elsewhere in the market. I think, generally speaking, though, that, that growth does pull the rest of the market higher. All right, Ari, thanks. Appreciate your time today. Ari Wald. Thank you. Still ahead, it's been a tough time to be a REIT as the Fed's rate cuts take a big hike out of expected returns in the sector and office challenges remain. But there are some REITs in the green still, like this one, up 11% since Jan 1. We'll reveal it and see who's faring the best and worst on the other side of this break. Welcome back. Well Tower was our mystery chart. It's one of the REITs actually posting a gain so far this year. It focuses on housing for seniors and health systems. Diana Olick is here with a look at some of the other winners and losers, of course, in today's real estate sector nomics. Diana? Well, Kelly, you've got rising interest rates, sky-high office vacancies, and other concerns in the broader commercial real estate market. So big shock, the sector continues lagging the S&P 500. So far this year, it's down over 4% compared to the S&P's 8% gain. When you take a look at the worst individual performers, there aren't many surprises. Office landlord Boston Properties is the worst performer, down almost 30% since the start of the year and still hovering near its lowest level since 2009. Medical property managers Health Peak and Alexandria are also firmly in the negative territory this year, as is cell tower REIT SBA Communications. On the other hand, there are a few key outperformers in the beat-up sector. Healthcare real estate giant Welltower, which you just saw, is the top gainer, up over 10%. And we've also seen notable gains in two of the residential rental players. Invitation Homes is up over 10%. That company focuses on single-family home rentals. And on the apartment side, Avalon Bay is hanging on to gains as well because, Kelly, you know, there's a lot of rental demand. I, you know, I don't know if you caught Don Peebles yesterday, Diana. He was a little more cautious about multifamily and maybe because of the supply glut that's coming. But and I've heard this from a few different people, you know, could, could those gains become losses? Yeah, I mean, we have more units under construction coming into the market this year than we have in over 20 years. And so there's concern about that because a lot of it is what they call A-level stuff. That is the top tier apartments, the more expensive ones where that's not exactly where all the demand is. We need more affordable housing. So that may be the concern in the market. But for single family rentals, which these REITs are about, 
there is still very strong demand there. All right, and people will take strength where they can get it. Diana, thanks. Diana Olick. Still ahead, the presidential kickoff for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis didn't go quite as planned on Twitter last night. We'll dig into what the glitchy event means for both DeSantis' bid and for Twitter's viability as a town square. That's next. And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage with stories of some of their influential business leaders. Here is EVgo Chief Revenue Officer Tanvi Chudervedi. Growing up in an Asian household, my parents have instilled values of hardship, believing in myself, and giving back to community. And I've charted my career based on those values. I have taken up opportunities where historically there has been a very low representation of women. I have seeked out mentors that value diversity, that value who I am, what I bring to the table. So I think uh, mentorship, giving back to the community, and as you get more senior, creating that time and space to nurture the next generation of talent uh, would be my message uh, to, to everyone. Welcome back to The Exchange. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announcing his 2024 presidential campaign in an event on Twitter Spaces hosted by Elon Musk and moderated by David Sachs last night. Take a listen. Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. Look, we know our country's going in the wrong direction. We see it with our eyes and we feel it in our bones. But as we all now know, the announcement wasn't all smooth sailing. Twitter Spaces struggled with a number of technical issues and a nearly half-hour delay. It raises the question if the digital town hall is really primetime ready, especially as news consumers are kind of looking to leap to different platforms for information. Joining us to discuss more, Sarah Fagan is former White House political director under President George W. Bush. And James Seward is a columnist at The New York Times and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Jim, I was ready from Murdoch to Musk to say this is the moment, and um, it was isn't that? Well, it's going to go down as one of the great fiascos in campaign history. And it certainly speaks to the technical mess that Twitter has become. But I think also for DeSantis to strap himself to Musk is, is really very peculiar given the Trump base. For most people, Musk is a symbol not so much of Twitter, but of Tesla. And the typical Trump voter, the hardcore base, they don't like, not only do they not drive Teslas, they don't like people who do drive Teslas. So putting all else aside, it's an odd brand extension. Sarah, it's good to see you again. And I understand why a campaign might want to look, look, there was tons of media attention in the 24, 48 hours ahead of this announcement just because it, it grabbed so many so many people's attention. Of Wow, this is a new platform. And it feels like with Fox, it may be a bit of a, of a weaker moment. There is a, an, a, a land, a piece of land to grab there. If this had gone off better, could this have been that moment or not? Yeah, I think it was actually a very good idea. It was a chance to get around, you know, uh, the quote unquote media filter to go directly to people. And look, I would say even with all the glitches, uh, one number estimated 300,000 people saw uh, these comments or heard these comments. And, you know, that's more than you would get in any other type of announcement. So I, I do think stretching um you know, oneself and doing these kinds of events as a presidential candidate makes a ton of sense. I don't think doing it as your announcement was probably, you know, in hindsight, maybe the, the best way uh, uh, to execute your launch. But it 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 is the wave of the future. And we're going to see more of these kinds of conversations and lots more platforms. 
Um, but it was a bad day for Twitter, no doubt. You know, Jim, I, I have to imagine Twitter is, is hustling now to try to get the technology. You know, Netflix, of course, also had this problem where they tried to do the live, uh, I think, season finale that didn't go well a couple of months ago. So these are growing pains and it feels like the platforms will get there and, and maybe they will have Tucker Carlson's new show or maybe they will have. I've seen podcast libraries are going to go over there, be TV content. Um, if those ambitions are serious, do you think that this is just, you know, a stumble on what will become the platform of the future, much like cable news was that for the past 30 years or so? Well, I think it, it. Yes, I agree. This is this is a temporary glitch. They're going to solve the technical problems eventually. I mean, again, Twitter will Twitter be the first to do it? I don't know. Given the cost cuts, the cutting back on their technology people, but there's no question that the social media platforms are going to develop the scale and the confidence to develop really large audiences. But I don't think we're there yet. I mean, I'd like to see. I'm not sure what the ratings were for DeSantis when he did his Fox News announcement. But the traditional media platforms for, you know, the I think for this campaign cycle are still going to be are going to dominate in terms of numbers over the uh, the social media platforms. So maybe this was a glimpse, Sarah, into what 2028 or beyond could look like. What would your advice be? Should more candidates kind of go this route and at least get the buzz of being the first on, on one of these new platforms at the risk of the platform not being quite ready for it. The only other thing I'd mention in that context is I think people were expecting DeSantis to feel maybe a little bit more relaxed and unscripted in this kind of setting. And, and he stuck to message, which is fine. I mean, the, but does the candidacy actually need to change a little bit as well um, as the platform potentially shifts? Well, I think running a modern campaign is harder than ever for, for part of the reasons you outlined, which is that there's just so much fragmentation uh, of media and the way people consume content is now um, uh, in lots of different places. There, uh, consumers are consuming more hours, but on more places. So there's more opportunities to reach them, but it's harder. Uh, and you have to be able to adjust to that. I, I do think, you know, from the DeSantis campaign's perspective, uh, what he is really, he is really good in a Q&A session. And so that was well thought through. Uh, but when you are running a presidential campaign, when something like this happens, it has a tendency to throw your candidate. And then it, it doesn't typically go great after. And so Part of this is assessing risk, and this was a pretty risky move looking back on it. Sure. So, Jim, I guess I would also ask, where does this then leave social media relative to kind of establishment media? Um, do, do we keep the crown for another, for another presidential cycle or not? Well, social media is hugely important. I mean, apart from these kind of town hall situations that we just saw yesterday, uh, the, the role of social media has become huge, very, very important. And the thing I think Sanders has to consider Whatever else you want to say about Donald Trump, he is a master of social media, and he used Twitter to amazing effectiveness in the last campaign. And he's continued; he'll be back, I assume, on Twitter and in his own platform. Among other things, Trump can be quite funny on social media, sometimes in a mean way, but it's extremely effective, and he's been doing it for years. DeSantis is really going to have to up his game on the social media front. Or walk away from it, Jim, altogether? I don't know how you walk away from it. It's it's the coin of the realm. Too many people tweet and retweet or get on Facebook and communicate. So much information and opinion moves that way. I don't think he can afford to ignore it, especially when, as I said, Trump is going to be all over it. You quickly say Part of this was getting under Trump's skin. And so in that respect, you know, uh, Trump was sort of the undisputed uh, Twitter king. He got kicked off. He started his own social platform. It hasn't gone great. 
Like this was a way for the DeSantis campaign to really tweak uh, Donald Trump right out of the gate in the very format at which you know True. Trump had had lost so much sort of stature, so to speak. Um, it, as we know, didn't go well. But that in of itself was thoughtful politically because you know you're trying. You, part of what the, Ron DeSantis has to do is to get under Trump's skin and yeah. to cause him to create moments that um, uh, cause his base to leave him. No, it's a great point. Guys, thank you both today. We really appreciate it. Sarah Fagan and James Stewart. Thanks for joining us here on The Exchange today. We're out of time, but Tyler's getting ready for a very busy power lunch. I'll see you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. I know how to run a hair salon. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.